Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by one of our fellows, Maria Castrenau. Maria is lecturer in anthropology, or perhaps social anthropology, at Brunel University, London. She works a lot on sectarian politics and national belonging, religion, state, conflict and energy in the Middle East and Southeastern Mediterranean. She's done extensive fieldwork in Syria, looking at contested identities and politics between the Druze sect and the Syrian state. And she's done some fascinating work beyond looking at the other side of the Southeastern Med. She's been funded by lots of different organisations and done some amazing work with refugees in Greece and stateless Syrians in the Israeli-occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Been trying to get this podcast off the ground for a while, and the podcast gods have favoured us today. So, Maria, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for the, for, for you and the podcast gods. <laughs> That's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm really, really looking forward to this. I've been reading your work for, for a long time and I've really enjoyed our, our various discussions over the years. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to going a bit deeper into some of the things that you're doing. So, Maria, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in the Middle East and sectarian and uh, sectarianism and, and belonging. Where did this all come from? Thank you for this uh, for this uh, question and the the podcast, Simon. Um, and just before I answer to your question, to say also um, thank you. I've been following your work, but also the collective work that you've been setting up at CPAD. And indeed, uh, over the past uh, couple of years, it's been uh, incredibly intellectually enriching to be part of uh, of that uh, collective. Uh, so thank you. Well, thank you. It's uh, kind how- to say. Oh, how how did I start? How did I how did I got interested in uh, in in Syria and the Middle East? Well, firstly, I'm uh, I'm Greek, so I'm a neighbor. Uh, I come from Athens. Uh, um, I grew up uh, with uh, uh, in a, in a very Greek uh, um, or or rather Greek household, uh, listening to Greek music, folk music, rebetica, sounds that are kind of shared across. The, the Middle East. And I was always uh, very, very um, interested um, to, to the neighbors that uh, are uh, uh, beyond the sea, beyond the, the Aegean. Um, and also, um, growing up in Athens, um, I, was, uh, I was part of, um, um, in, in Athens, it was um, um, the, the labor movement in, uh, in Greece, if you'd like was very close to um, both the Palestinian um, uh, causes and and uh, the, the Kurdish causes. So I remember, indeed, one of my first um, book gifts as a Christmas uh, to be drawings from uh, the, the Palestinian kids of the Intifada. So this, these were very, um, very formative experiences Right, because uh, as as uh, growing up in Greece, I we kind of I kind of felt that there was a lot of things shared to to the to the neighbors um, beyond the sea. However, uh, at the same time, Greece was uh, uh, or or the national culture in Greece was kind kind of forcing us to be very European and to be very Western and to be very other. So the narrative was that. 
uh, Greece belongs to is, is the foundational stone of Western civilization mm. and so on. So, so I think uh, these two paradoxes, um, the, the music, the sounds, our dances, um, and the kind of um, the, the similarity um, and, and the, the connection with the struggle um, really resonated to me much more um, than what I felt was a kind of more superficial uh, pretentiousness to be uh, so-called Western European. So I really wanted to, to see for myself um, you know, those people that we heard on the news um, that so there were wars, occupations, uh, how how were they um, ordering their lives? Uh, um, how could they be so so similar and so different mm. um, to me to explore this this uh, intriguing intri- intriguing distance um, and uh, and similarity um, and you know, one of the, I think one of the very first essays that I wrote to, in uh, in anthropology when I went to to Durham to study anthropology uh, was comparing, and that was like a really wacky essay, and that was like me first year anthropology, really like really kind of exoticizing an Orientalist, but it will give you an idea, like uh, the sword. A comparison of the sword dances between um, Bedouins and few India, Indians. Um, so I, I was always fascinated by by that. Interesting, interesting. So I, I have a couple of questions about where the anthropology came from. Was it just the an interest in understanding people and and how people live their lives, and from that as well, just curious about your your first interaction with a palestinian then if if it was initially through a um a book of art when you were a child which is amazing i love that um and through just broader broader narratives about the intifadas when did you first encounter a a a palestinian to to talk to and hear their own lived experiences and and then why anthropology Mm, i mean i i cannot answer the first time I encountered a Palestinian, because I think uh, I mean my 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 mother was um, a member of the trade union struggle and a member of the Greek Communist um, Party. Right. So we were always growing up as uh, on the street, right? Sure. We yeah, were yeah. always protesting and um, and protesting uh, for. Um, both the causes of exploitation at home, so to speak, and the cause of exploitation worldwide. Um, so, in a sense, the, the Palestinian struggle wasn't uh, wasn't something uh, very different because uh, we were in the street protesting for it, uh, kind of since since forever. Sure. Okay. Uh, since I can remember my myself. Do you know what your first protest um, was? Uh, I think there is uh, um, uh, a photograph of me, um, almost uh, newborn, uh, with the, f- the first of May protest. Okay, wonderful. After I was born, <laughs> I, I was love born it. in April. <laughs> right. 
Okay, so, um, so that explains a lot then. But but the anthropology, I mean, where does that come out of? Uh, so when I when I was deciding what to do, and I was I was very um, it, it was very difficult to decide what was study because I was a kind of you know a very good student at school. Um, so everybody was pushing me to study medicine, mm-hmm. and not history or social uh, theory or nothing like that. So I kind of I kind of rebelled, and I guess. At that time, I remember me thinking, you know, there there are two types of of very interesting things to do in in your life, Maria. Uh, that's my post teenage self speaking to me. <laughs> um, one is to find to try to find out the truth, and maybe you can do that through physics, um, or to try to find out other people's truth. Um, and this you can do with anthropology and with traveling and meeting and trying to, to, to meet as many people and to understand as, as many different ways of life as you can. Mm-hmm. So I chose the second one. Okay. Um, that, that makes sense. And it also, I think, Maybe this is reverse engineering slightly, but you talked about the the political ordering and how people order their lives um, in your in your first answer, and I think that that really speaks to to questions of anthropology and and politics, of course. But the ordering of life and understanding how people order their lives, I think, is is a really interesting um, anthropological question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... And, and and especially when you know you grow up um, not only in the streets but also bombarded in the news about the plight of other people, the bombing of other people, and the big political solution, uh, the big the big political issues that politicians with big P um, are are yeah. deciding upon. Then I think it's it's very normal to. To question, well, how does this impact on people's lives, sure. and and also maybe is there a bit of space for people to to do something different? Do they do something different? How do they deal? How do they maintain their dignity, their honor, their resistance um, against all the odds, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So you do your your um, anthropology at Durham, and then and then what? How do you get into the PhD? Because with a, a family history of activism and political engagement, you could have gone in in lots of different routes to the more direct political uh, um, actions, but you you've chosen the the scholarly route. So where did that come from? What was the the idea behind it? Was it just intellectual curiosity, or or was there something else? <laughs> Well, my my mother had instilled in me that becoming a politician is the worst thing that you can do uh, if you want to be an activist. Sure, so, okay. <laughs> but you could have been an activist, right? You could have carried on the family tradition. Uh, that although I did in, in, in school, I enjoyed doing modern so, so, <laughs> I, I, I can't say I have really followed it faithfully, right? Okay. Uh, because uh, I'm an academic. <laughs> Sure. Um, so, 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 
Sorry, repeat the question. I lost my train. <laughs> That's okay. So, with all of this, your own background, your your family history, granted, with the caveat of becoming a politician is the worst thing that one can do as an activist. Why why did you decide to continue with a PhD? Hmm. Uh, because I I I. I mean, I was fascinated by anthropology. Okay. Um, I really, really enjoyed my studies in uh, uh, in Durham, and especially my my interaction um, with uh, uh, my m- what meant to be my my supervisor, so Steve Lyon, um, and actually all the, all the teachers and lecturers in Durham. They were. Um, Really formative and really welcoming to to having conversations. Um, so I felt I felt like this is my home. This is you know where I can ask questions and find out more and explore more, um, and then ask more questions. Right. Okay. Um, and <laughs> yes, and 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 there was my my opportunity to um, to go to this uh, near far. Uh, and 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 to do whatever um, I wanted, which was fascinating and and really really scary at the sure. same time. So where did you go then? Because your your work now looks at at the Druze of Syria, but your your immediate interest, as we've identified, was Palestine, the Near Far. Where where does this curiosity about the Druze come from? So the, the Druze came as, as a, a result of the idiosyncratic process of doing field work in Syria. Okay. So the first step was to choose a field site, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I I wanted to go everywhere and uh, uh, um, everywhere I could. And at that time, Syria was the least. Um, um, the, the, the least anthropologically studied uh, country in the um, in the Middle East uh, and in the Eastern Mediterranean, and and in some ways it still is. Um, but uh, remember, before the uprising and war in Syria, uh, we had really, really, really few um, anthropological and ethnographic works in English in. Uh, mm-hmm in on Syria. Okay. Um so it was it it was a vast interesting um country that had almost no anthropological engagement um and 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 it was fascinating and it was deemed to be very very stable of course. Yeah, of course. Um, so when so, what year was this? So I started my PhD in 2007. Okay. Okay. Um, so that was that was two thousand and seven. Um, yeah. So yeah, deemed to be um, quite stable, underexplored, under-theorized. Yeah, and I was I was I was like you know slightly crazy and young, and I wanted to do things and and very much influenced uh, uh, from like. Postmodern thought at that point, and <laughs> to go and I wanted to do 
the the politics of the body and the politics of dance uh, and politics through dance in uh, in Syria. And that was the original plan to to do dance to 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 really do you know politics through dance. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, in in Syria, and I kind of set out to to do that, um, and I set out in 2008, um, and I had done a bit of Arabic before mm-hmm. uh, in Durham, uh, and I enrolled also at the University of Damascus, the brilliant Arabic course that they had, um, um, and in uh, in the in the process um, of trying to find um, uh, a space, a house. Um, and ideally a family, through a lot of uh, kind of adventures and uh, some some better and some worse, I ended up finding kind of refuge in the family of a friend who -hmm. happened to be Druze and who happened to be in in Jaramana, where I ended up, uh, you know, where the temporary protection and offer of of hospitality became a kind of, of permanent, uh, and indeed it has it has lasted uh, up until uh, up until now. Fascinating. So, in some ways, it was almost by accident. Yes, I think a lot of anthropological works uh, happen like that. <laughs> sure, I don't think it's just anthropology, <laughs> to be honest. But um, that, that's interesting to hear you say. So, the. The, the case of the Druze in Syria is is fascinating, and you've done this amazing work on it. It's a, a tragic set of stories, a tragic set of political exploitation and marginalization um, as a consequence of a whole host of different factors. And your work does a really, really great job of critically reflecting on on some of the ways in which the, the Syrian state has oppressed, marginalized, um, and control these communities, but also how the communities are trying to perform their lives and their identities in the face of this oppression. But tell us a little bit for people who aren't. I, I, Sorry, Maria. Yeah. Please. No, I think I think it's more complicated than uh, than that. It is uh, it is a great a gray zone, right? Or it was much more of a gray zone. Sure. Than- for the, um, uh, the 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 uprising and the war, because precisely uh, the state uh, both allowed but also formulated um, a very strict space, uh, a political geography of of uh, uh, cultural identities to exist under its own uh, rubric. Um, so it, it wasn't straight oppression. It was something. It was a very clever, almost way to to both oppress and and co-opt uh, different forms of identities. Sure. Yeah. That. I mean. That. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the. the... So you, you probably wanted to. You probably wanted to, to ask that. Yeah, I, I did, but thank you for <laughs> for preempting it. Um, the Agambenian sort of scholar in me would say that 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 process of allowing, co-opting, and oppressing is is a, a tool, a biopolitical tool to control. So I, I certainly see the the nuance at play here, and I think what you're doing with with your work of untangling that sort of that space that 
you called it a, a grey zone. Um, I think we can call it a space of exception, included and excluded from the, the polity at the same time. But for, for people who aren't as familiar with the case of the Druze and the, and the Golan Heights, can you just give us a little bit of background to it, please? Sure. Um, so let's let's start by saying um, who who the Druze are. Um, the Druze are a religious community that exists in the Middle East and exists uh, around the world. Um, the now I'm an anthropologist, and um, I have to rely on other people's uh, percentages and numbers, especially. In regards to religious communities, as uh, as you know, Simon, they are not very reliable in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, these are the numbers that we have uh, to work with. So, um, an, an approximate uh, three to four percent of the Syrian population um, is is said to be Druze, um, and uh, most of the Druze people in Syria live in the. Uh, um, prefecture of Sueda and in the um, urban uh, near Damascus uh, village of Jaramana. Uh, there are also uh, historical communities with smaller numbers near Edled in Jabal al-Samak. Um, and in the Middle East, uh, uh, of course, they exist in, in, uh, in Lebanon, in, uh, in Jordan, um, and in 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 Israel, mm-hmm. um, and there exist also um, diasporic communities throughout. So uh, in the states, for example, there's a very big historical one, and so on. And in the, in, in Latin America, uh, also. Um, now these uh, these people have a historical relationship to the Ismaili um, Shia branch of Islam uh, that uh, came to be. In, uh, during the 11th century Fatimid Empire, uh, Fatimid dynasty in uh, in Cairo, um, and the, the the interesting and unique thing of of this religion is that it combines a lot of um, uh, mystical aspects from um, Sufism, Gnosticism. Neoplatonism, uh, even Hinduism, mm. uh, and it it brings together to its own reinterpretation of of what it is to be um, a human and what it is to be um, uh, a Druze. Uh, the the doctrine of the Druze is called the Tawhid, which means uh, to be one, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, it, it underscores that this is a very um, uh, an elaboration of uh, of, uh, of monism, of unitarianism, of extreme unitarianism, let's say. And the point, the cosmological point of this religion, is to 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 attain to be one with the divine. And how do you attain this? There are two ways. One is through knowledge and study in this life. And you do this by following the safely route um, of attaining oneness, sacredness with a divine. Um, and Druze societies are um, divided, let's say, between those who are um, 
the red, the fakes, they're called um, the ukal, the knowledgeable, because only these people have access to the sacred uh, book, the Risailal Hikma, and the rest of, of society, uh, who is, let's say, the, the 90% of society, who is the, the lay, the juhai, uh, the, the ignorant. And in this way, also, this is why we call, uh, you, you, you might have seen that a lot of people um, call the Druze as an ethno-religious uh, group, yeah. uh, because you don't have to be versed in the, in the faith in order to be Druze. You are born Druze. Um, and you can, it's a non-proselytizing religion, so you cannot become Druze. You are born uh, into this community. Um, and, and, and this brings me to the second point that we can attain, um, the unity with, uh, with the divine. And this is through the, uh, the, the process of reincarnation. And the Druze have a specific uh, idea of reincarnation called Takamus. Um, and Takamus is, uh, is very different from, let's say, karmic form of reincarnations in which there is a certain ethical compensation on the basis of uh, the deeds that one does in uh, this life they these are rewarded or punished in the life uh, to come no there is uh, there is uh, not really such uh, such concept in in the takamus druze uh, uh, reincarnation the the point is to to go through as many different kinds of lives um, in order to to attain knowledge in in that way. Right. Um, and so in the Bruce cosmology, the incarnation works only within the community. So the Druze can only um, reincarnate into Druze. So the Druze, Druze souls can only reincarnate into Druze bodies. Uh, so there's this kind of um, entropy, if uh, if you like, or the constant recycling of of souls. That's really helpful. Thank you, and a really rich theological um, overview of of the Druze communities and people who are who are well versed in in some of these things will note the the immediate lines of difference between other um, religious communities, both in Syria and. And beyond, um, which I think is what makes the Druze a really fascinating um, group to, to study intellectually, but also a, a really challenging group to to understand politically and socially and and indeed culturally. So, tell us a little bit more about this mm. this grey zone, then, Maria. Please, um, you've you've done a lot of work on on this anthropologically. Um, publishing articles, book chapters on, on these types of questions and the, the different forms that the, the grey zone takes. Um, just tell us a little bit about it, please, and and how it, it affects the, the ordering of, of life in Druze communities. Um, so I think I need to answer... Um, your your question in 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 two ways or or uh, yes uh, the first is that um, um, 
you, you say, how does this affect uh, Druze communities? I think uh, it's really difficult to talk about Druze communities in general, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is because, uh, like every community or every neighborhood indeed, uh, things change and uh, people change and uh, their politics, their, so, their social relations, their economics um, change um, um, in, in different ways. Uh, so that's that's why in my work and and because as anthropologist um, I I only can rely on the things that I have empirical knowledge of, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time as I avoid the kind of vulgar empiricist, right? Um, so this is why in my work I focus primarily on on Jaramana and in Marshall Sams in the Golan Heights because this is the two locations that I have. Uh, particular experiences of, um, and I the, the two locations that I have studied very well. That let's say, apart from the experiment experiential level, the political economy and differences and um, and similarities. Uh, so, so this is just a parenthesis to say that it's really difficult to speak about all Jews communities, and indeed. It is also difficult and not unproblematic to speak about Jewish communities in general, because in this way we essentialize, we make, um, we we attribute characteristics that may not be be there. Uh, but by being attuned to the to the history and to the political economy of specific places, then we can trace how different characteristics um, exist and change and, and give um, uh, different people in, ge- in different geographic uh, spaces the attributes of a community or, um, or a social cohesive group, right? Mm-hmm. So, sorry for that elaboration, but I think, I think it's, it's really, really important. And this um, is why we need anthropologists. Yeah, but, but you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a a very often and very frustrating kind of mistake that gets rolled rolled on um, to to people in, in the in the scholarship mm. of the Middle East. So, um, if if anything, I can if I can do anything to question that, then kind of you know some of my job is done, and I'm <laughs> very happy. And and hence this is why. In my in my book, uh, Power, Sex, and State in Syria. So the the book that came out of the long term field work in Jaramana, um, I I I spend a lot of chapters and a lot of time talking about the differences within the Druze neighborhood, as as I talk about the differences, the sectarianism beyond it, right? So so in 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 my work, I try to show that status, uh, class, internally, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, heterogeneity beyond beyond the collective communal uh, space of being a Druze. Sure, um, yeah. And at the, at the same time, this becomes really apparent in, uh, in my work uh, with, uh, in my work in the, in the Golan Heights, right? So the mm. The Israeli occupied Syrian Golan Heights were occupied by Israel in the 1967 war, and they've been occupied since then. Uh, during that war, Israel um, forcefully uh, uh, moved uh, 
uh, more than uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think one thousand to uh, um, one hundred twenty-six thousand uh, people. Um, the area was was culturally mixed, and uh, and there are very good indicators to suggest that Israel was involved in a kind of ethnic cleansing in allowing um, the Druze villages in allowing in in front of quotations mark to hoping that they will be able to sectarianize them more and enlist their um, their support as they have done with uh, parts of the Druze uh, that live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and one of the most uh, forceful ways of the indigenous resistance of the people in the Golan who who are who have been stateless since then, uh, since nineteen sixty-seven, uh, um, is that uh, they have resisted the sectarianization of the the Druze identity by the Israeli state. So they have resisted the the particularization of 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 their identity. So Israel for example has um, um, has instituted a particularly Druze uh, curriculum in schools. They have resisted that. Right. Um so you see uh, for, for part of their Resistance is the anti-sectarianization uh, of their identity, and uh, I mean, interestingly, since the, the war in Syria has has kind of um, unfortunately strengthened the the sectarian uh, divide in in Syria um, because there was an absence. Of different kind political voices before, and I guess here um, I need to answer the first part of your your question about the kind of gray zones of cooptation, uh, uh, complicity, uh, oppression that uh, existed before the war in, in Syria, right? Mm. Um, just a moment. Sure. So, so I, I, if I may, I can I can give um, an example. You may when uh, when I <laughs> when I went when I went and, and I was doing field work in Syria. And remember, I went there to do dances, and so I was I was looking for dances everywhere, <laughs> and uh, I was finding a lot of dances. Community settings, like people uh, dancing in, in parties, but also in uh, folklore festivals, in uh, um, in in TVs and so on. But the strange thing about these dances was that they all were kind of performed as a marriage, either as a, as a as part of a wedding party or or as a marriage between opposites. Mm-hmm. So literally, most of the folklore troops that I, I watched on stage in folklore festivals, which was kind of, you know, where I would go uh, as, as an anthropologist uh, in Syria, were states that married this. So I was like, what is going on? What is happening with, uh, uh, with this marriage? Why everybody only talks about 
uh, marriage? What is the, the, the contestation? What is the, the meaning of the body uh, in, in marriage? And why? And, and so, so this was one of the strange things that happened, let's say, in Folklore Festival um, and in, in, uh, in, in, in spaces of like cultural production. And the other thing was that although the, the national uh, rhetoric of the Syrian state was that of Arab nationalism, and hence there was no space in the official rhetoric and in a lot of the actualities and practicalities and oppressions and exploitations of everyday life, there was no space for, let's say, um, Kurdish nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. No one, or, or a Syrian or other kind of. Um, minorities and and the the, the formal religion in uh, in Syria was uh, were Muslim uh, Christian Jewish and uh, th- there was you know, n- no kind of formal uh, understanding or or there was not a kind of uh, there was a nationalist not a sectarian uh, state rhetoric but in actual practice in places like folklore festival, um, you you saw on the stage of the state a lot of the, of, of the identities that you wouldn't know existed if you only relied on to the nationalist uh, rhetoric of the government, or if you only relied on, on the political and historical uh, readings of Syria from, from outside. Right. Right. Uh, so there was a space. These uh, these folklore festivals were were providing a kind of space of for the existence of different culturalist identities, but within the remit of the allowable by the state. And this is this was very interesting. This made me really really think and question what I knew about or from. Um, classical understandings forum for the nation state you mm-hmm. know what is the nation state uh, answer number one imagine communities right homogeneous yeah. um, uh, culture um, uh, reproduced sameness but there was a dissonance in 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 these spaces of cultural um, production of, of cultural and folk production right because for Folklore festivals, I must say, they were they were not kind of uh, highly intellectual affairs. It was where the state would go in some of its more um, impoverished provinces to to kind of you know create a space of of celebration and coming together. Uh, so the the folklore festival, for example, were in in the same spaces where. Um, the, the the uprising uh, began. So Postra right. in Dara, uh, Idlib. Um, I think there is an interesting connection there. Yeah. So so in 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 there, um, it was so it, it made the question that actually the the cultural policy of the Syrian state wasn't really nationalist. If it wasn't nationalist, what was it? Um, and and that kind of let me think that 
uh, actually the Syrian state was acting in these spaces where, let's say, soft power exists mm-hmm. as a state of empire, not as a nation state, as uh, because it is an empire that allows difference, but sanctions what kind of difference uh, exists. Uh, so the so and and actually that was kind of revelatory because really the Syrian state was not. Um, so I, I I wouldn't use the word oppress minorities. It it, it wasn't oppressing minorities like uh, in in the terms of uh, um, in the terms of the cultural realm, right? I'm mm-hmm. not speaking of the um, the Syrian state and actually most states. If if you go against the state, they oppress you very nicely and they put you in prison and they torture you and they can kill you. Um, so. so I'm, I'm talking on the on the realm of the cultural production um, and the rhetoric. So in the rhetoric, it, they 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 were promoting heterogeneity. They were promoting kinds of uh, unity and difference, and that was the interesting, uh, the interesting and relevatory um, part of that. That it wasn't in the classical sense a nation state. Uh, that uh, that 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 it sanctioned difference. It sanctioned its difference. The, di- the difference that politically that was a political difference, um, but allowed uh, Kurdish troops, Assyrian troops, Alawi troops, Druze troops, and so on to be on on stage and to perform. And that politics was very very interesting for me, and. Um, um, it was uh, a kind of politics that that also kind of had, uh, and we saw that with the uprising and the war, grave uh, uh, grave results because uh, the the state had formed a kind of rhetoric that uh, um, it was uh, it was like um, it's it's the only by by doing these things it proclaimed itself to be. Let's say, quote unquote, the only guarantor of harmony between the differences, and in a sense, um, on on that on that rhetoric, um, it has unfortunately kind of uh, um, it it made it made itself. Uh, um, how do you say? It? I, I've lost. Uh, um, uh, it, it it made it made its own fulfilling prophecy mm. in a sense uh, for that because the war um, kind of um, unleashed uh, and 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 created sectarian differences and sectarian um, narratives and under narratives uh, uh, and the weaponization. Of the conflict, uh, uh, as it happened, it it uh, created new um, sovereignty. Yeah, uh, that had that were used that, that these characteristics were used politically. It's really so interesting it was, to hear yeah. you reflect on that, and it 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 strikes me there's a lot of really interesting scope to draw on social theorists in particular to understand. Um, the the ways in which states 
operate beyond the the more traditional approaches i think and yeah that's something that you've you've touched on and we've had conversations about in the past and it's yeah it's really interesting to 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 see how all of this plays out but maria we've been talking for for a long time now and it's fascinating and there's so much more um there's so much more to discuss but i wonder if i can ask just one final question please and that is where are, are, are the Druze communities, I say plural, having been subtly reprimanded earlier, um, communities plural positioned in the in the Syrian state now when we're over, uh, we're approaching 12 years of, of war, 12 years of division, 12 years of, of these grey zones in the context of conflict. So where do, do these communities find themselves today? I think uh, this community, uh, a few days ago, uh, there were um, demonstrations in, in Suedia, uh, and um, uh, both uh, demonstrate, a demonstrator and a policeman uh, was killed. Um, and like a lot of previous demonstrator demonstrations in Suedia and beyond, uh, and, and throughout Syria, um, these people were 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 fighting and were and have taken to the streets because they are extremely poor and their living conditions are dire. Uh, Syria was always a poor country, and uh, the war has devastated the country. Uh, the war, I think, ninety uh, percent um, of the population of Syria today live. Uh, uh, um, in poverty, in poverty, and I think a thirty percent of that live in uh, abstract um, uh, poverty, um, and it's it's it's, it's horrible. Um, every, every day life is punctuated by long queues to get fuel, to get bread. Um, it's punctuated uh, between. Hours and hours of electricity cuts, um, and people cannot afford uh, basic things. Uh, they they live the Syrian lira has depreciated so much. Um, people are reliant on um, um, money sent from from refugees outside of Syria. I mean, it's awful. And not only for people that are Druze, but for for all Syrians. Mm-hmm. And I think, and and I think this is an important point that I would like to make before we close. And um, I think a lot of my work has to do with um, about is about um, the the Druze people, um, and especially the more ethnographic part of reincarnation and rituals and marriages and so on. Um, but I think uh, my work uh, also speaks uh, to, uh, to 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 Syria in some in some sense uh, more more broadly. My my PhD, my book, um, reflected a time in in Syria, a time that is no more uh, today. A time that yes, there was the kind of subtle sectarianism of who you marry in endogamy, but also people were looking at outside. They were facing between 
kind you know the the neoliberalism of of uh, estates that was trying to make um, uh, neoliberal policies but with a social uh, social faith uh, if you remember that was the narrative uh, before the 2011 and so um and so in 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 some sense we shouldn't read i guess too much about the particularities of a minority uh, uh, community, uh, because also minority commu- um, the, the history of minority in the Middle East uh, is inherently political and historical and politicized. So minorities, in a way, have always been the the keys to of imperialism in. Mm. Uh, uh, in the era, and although people in all the regions have uh, have similarities and differences, there is also something like um, um, historical about uh, the the geographies of these people. So, for example, the Ramana was was mixed, um, and until the middle of the 20th century, um, would have more in common with its neighbors in in Ruta, Rather than its co-religionist in uh, in Sweden, and that has to do with uh, you know segregation in ritual, or for following uh, Sharia law and inheritance in death. So these are all really really important um, points when we look at um, at people in the midst. Uh, political and historical uh, chains, and we need to be really, really attuned to to all of these. And I guess the challenge for me, um, as an anthropologist, is how to maintain the broader picture of political economy, of Syrian society, culture, and politics, of which Druze and all, everybody else is very much a part, uh, a part of. As well as the more particular ideas and cosmologies um, of, of of marriage and um, uh, death and so on. That's really interesting, and and that that point about your work as an anthropologist, I think, is important for for all of us with a with a keen interest, intellectually, personally, or politically, in the in the study of the region. So. Uh, I think we all need to and to, to listen carefully to the uh, to the contributions of anthropologists, sociologists, and and people from from other disciplines outside of of our own, because there's there's a lot of incredibly important things to to be said and and to be heard. So, Maria, thank you so much for your time yeah. just now. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. I've learned a lot, as I always do when I I talk with you. So, thank you. It's been it's been a real honor. Thank you, thank you, Simon, so much. And and as a last note, to, to say also that we should also listen to the people of the region. <laughs> of course, uh, of course, of course. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Maria. Huge thank you to Maria for her time just now. You can't find her on Twitter, which is actually quite refreshing. But do check out her work and. Uh, and have a read of these wonderful pieces reflecting on things that have been typically overlooked in debate about sectarianism, I think. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.